From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Kate Moody. Thanks for downloading this podcast. If you like what you hear, why not recommend it to a friend? That's how Fintech Friends Forever are made. This week, we're talking ramp and add ENC valuations drop. Two overlapping but different businesses having a sort of similar experience, challenging times. We dig into what's going on, what we think the future looks like for them, and what this might mean for other businesses looking to raise around this time. Lightyear launches investment account for freelancers. We're joined by the CEO, Martin, to kind of help talk us through what it is that they're hoping to achieve with this, the the types of customers they're looking to reach, and why they believe they're still so fundamentally underserved. And banking is no laughing matter, unless it's the Edinburgh Fringe. We look at some of the jokes from this Edinburgh Fringe that have tickled us uh, and add some more of our own. We get into all this and much more on today's show, back after these messages. This is Fintech Insider After Dark. We are breaking out of the studio and bringing it to the community. It's a live recording of the Fintech Insider podcast featuring your favorite hosts and big name guests. Well, thank you very much for having me back. Join us and become a certified Fintech Insider. Whether it's beers in London or pizza in New York, catch up with Fintech geeks and make new friends across the financial services ecosystem. This is packed out, right? This is standing yeah. We are bringing After Dark to the Village Underground in London on the 20th of September. Click the link in the podcast description or visit 11fs.com slash afterdark. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Good night. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. Welcome to episode 775 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody, Customer Strategy Director at 11FS, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, I'm joined by my 11FS co-host, Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research and Strategy here at 11FS. Hello, Benjamin. Always nice to, to see you. What have you been up to recently? Hello, Kate. Um, we've got a really fun project on at the moment. We are working with the innovation team at one of our clients. And while I can't really share what their ideas are with everyone, they've got some really, really good ideas for totally different markets. Um, so we're doing a, a series of quick sprints with them, exploring some of those ideas with customers and seeing which ones really resonate and trying to help them sharpen those ideas. Um, fantastic. Loving it. Yeah, and no, I keep hearing like little snippets on the side. I'm like, one week it's one thing, and then the next week it's something like a completely different in another part of the world. So it definitely sounds like it's keeping you on your toes. Um, well, we have a very welcome return to Fintech Insider for Kate Drew, Director of Research at CCG Catalyst. Um, thanks for joining us again, Kate. Always a pleasure to have anyone called Kate on the show, but um, especially <laughs> good to have you back. What should our newer listeners know about you and CCG Catalyst? Like you said, I'm the director of research at CCG. We're a financial services consulting firm based in the U.S., really focused on um, the intersection of banking and fintech. 
and I manage our pipeline of research content, both on the client side and externally under our CCG Insights umbrella. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming back and looking forward to picking your brain as always. And last, but by no means least, we have another return for Martin Sock, CEO and co-founder at Lightyear. Welcome back to the show, Martin. What should our audience know about you and Lightyear? Hi, thanks for having me back. Um, like Lightyear is rather simple concept. Uh, the thing what we want to achieve is we want to create better investors. And three years ago, we started looking around the market and we realized that most of the people are not investing and the people who do, they don't really have a good services. It kind of seems that Europe is 30 different islands and nobody really offers something what works for everybody in Europe. So this is what we have been building for the last three years now. Awesome. Well, looking forward to getting to your news a bit later on the show. And with that, let's get into the news. Our first story comes from a mixture of places. It was covered in CNBC, TechCrunch. Um, and that is that Ramp raises a down round and Adyen share value drops. Two high profile fintech companies are currently facing significant drops in their valuations. Dutch payments firm Adyen saw its share value plummet 39%, erasing 18.18 billion euros, that's $20 billion, from the company's market capitalization. The fall came after the company reported its slowest revenue growth on record. Meanwhile, in the US, corporate card and spending management startup Ramp has raised a new round of funding at a steep discount to its last valuation. Ramp announced a $300 million raise at a valuation of $5.8 billion, which is a 28% discount on the $8.1 billion valuation it commanded last year. The New York-based company's round is co-led by existing backer Thrive Capital and new investor Sands Capital. I mean, Benjamin, we've we've stitched these two stories together because they've landed at the same time, but you know, is that the only connection or is there more that links these things together? No, I think I think they are connected. I mean, there's a there's a wider thing that's been going on in fintech, obviously, for the past couple of years, as everyone who's listening to this, you know, well knows, you know, valuations have been dropping. Um, valuations were too high before. So, you know, there was a need for a correction. And obviously, that's hitting some companies harder than others, because some companies' valuations were, you know, more inflated than others. And I'm, I'm not saying that um, Ramp and Agen were particularly inflated. Um both of those companies are in similar sectors. They're both in sort of B2B payments. That's a hugely competitive market. You know, not that there's areas of fintech that are not competitive, but it's a particularly competitive part of the market. It's not commoditized, but there are no, a large number of companies that can do the same thing. So there's quite fierce competition um, for customers. There's, therefore, you start to get pressure on margins. Um, Adyen suffered in particular because it disappointed investors with its earnings. You know, you know how um, sort of analysts make predictions of what the expected earnings of companies are going to be. And when companies miss those expectations, investors are like, oh my God, it's all gone wrong. Um, doesn't necessarily mean, you know, there's fundamental underlying problems, but investors never like those kind of surprises. Um, and so that's hit their share price really hard. So I think there is quite a bit connected, even though they're separate businesses, they're in similar markets and those markets are competitive. Um, it's tough out there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's one of those things where you like you read the initial headline and then you look at some of the stats behind it in in terms of Adyen's results. And you know, from my perspective, like they still look pretty good, right? Like they're it's still growing. Yeah, yeah the, you know, exactly. the revenue was up twenty one percent from last year. But I guess then it comes back to as you say, personally, where are those expectations and where have you set those expectations and what's the relationship you have with your investors because of those expectations? Um, yeah, really, really interesting. Kate, what's your perspective? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with, with Benjamin. I think Adyen in particular is in a tough spot because Wall Street is just relentless if you miss their expectations and they treat the company like a growth stock. So any kind of slowdown is going to be painful. But I also agree that like, these are not, you know, bad numbers on their own. I mean, Ramp has raised $300 million in a tough funding environment. Um, Adyen, in addition to the revenue growth, reconfirmed their EBITDA margin guidance at 65%. So I think it's really just, you know, they're stuck in this sort of course correction where a couple years ago, everything was flying so high, too high, expectations were too high. And now we're all kind of coming back down to earth a little bit. I can add uh, some layer here, like private and public markets are like technically really linked. So if you think about like what has happened is that the optimism has faded away. Uh, and if the public market optimism has faded away, then now you have like late stage companies who need to IPO at one point. But if people compare to the public market companies where you need to IPO into, means that if you're not able to get that valuation, that your rounds will be lower as well, because you need to adjust in a way what you think you're going to get. And in the end, like, I would simplify, like, investors are really emotional animals. When, like, two years ago, everything was, like, hyper-optimism, then today is, like, hyper-pessimism. And every single kind of indicator what kind of shows that it goes a little bit slower, it doesn't grow uh, up, like, above wildest expectations, like, everybody starts like a little bit kind of scared and like pulling back. So what we see actually quite a bit right now is that people are sitting in cash. Lots of money goes into the cash. And there's a reason for that. Like you, you can invest into the public market, but at the same time, you can put money into earning interest and you're making risk-free and lots of interest. So a lot of money moves away in the different new categories and people are more pessimistic. Benjamin, I suppose... On that basis, do you think it's time to try and like kill the stigma that obviously exists around these types of down rounds or are some down rounds still bad? Um, I mean, I don't know that they are They are bad. I mean, they're, they're, they're bad in the sense that it means that whoever invested in the previous round probably paid too much, right? So that's bad. But, you know, that's water under the bridge, right? You, you, you gave the money, you invested the money for the for what seemed like a good deal for you at the time. Sometimes what seems like a good deal, you know, to all of us, you know, we buy something and like, oh, whoops, shouldn't have bought that, right? Uh, it happens. Um, so I think I think the stigma is unhelpful. And, and I think what, what, what the others have said, you know, these are still, these are good companies. Um, they're still growing, you know, it's just that, you know, the interest rate environment has totally changed, attitudes have changed. And as Kate said, investors hate being disappointed, um, you know, Wall Street investors, other investors. Um, so yeah, I think there shouldn't be a, a, a stigma around a down round. You know, anything is only worth what someone else is prepared to pay for it. And people were pe- prepared to pay too much for fintechs, some fintechs at least, in the past. And now probably, you know, there's probably some good deals starting to emerge. You know, there's still plenty of good companies out there, still plenty of companies transforming um, financial services in people's lives. Yeah, and I thought it was really interesting some of the interviews. Now, I've seen Eric Lyman, the CEO of Ramp, kind of come out and do some really interesting interviews since this raise was announced. And he's been sort of self-describing it as, you know, I think he called it an opportunistic raise. And he was talking about how their existing investors had come to him and said, like, you know, we want you to go back and continue to support your growth and get back out to the market. And he was actually talking about how the fact that they have, you know, as, as Kate said, been able to raise this really large round in a difficult time means that, you know, they have the 
the bank balances now to go and invest in growth at a time when their competitors are are cutting their costs, cutting their staff, really kind of narrowing their roadmaps. Um, so actually, it kind of felt like at least the perspective at Ramp is that even if you take a short term cut in your valuation, it, if you can get access to the capital at a time when everyone else is slowing down and you can speed up, then then that's going to put them in in a fantastic position in the long run. Um Exactly. Kate, did, had you, have you, had you see anything similar in your analysis in terms of kind of ramps trajectory? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a great point, and I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, the ability to to raise this round shows, you know, strength in in the business model, right? And now they're going to be able to invest and grow on the back of that. Um, I would also say that, like, when you start to see down rounds that are sector-wide or industry-wide or market-wide, you have to take that into consideration, you know, along with that stigma, right? Because it's not necessarily company-specific. These companies are navigating a really, really tough environment. And so I think when we talk about stigma around down rounds right now, um, you know, and that, and that can change, you know, depending on, on what the environment is doing. But like when we talk about that right now, we have to take that into consideration too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I suppose they're very different companies, right? Benjamin, Adyen and, and Ramp, like they do have some similarities as you kind of said at the beginning, but they've both got their own focus areas kind of going forward. It's like what are the main challenges that you think Ramp and Adyen have to overcome in the next sort of 12 months or so? Uh, stripe. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm joking, but but I think that the, the challenge is precisely competition, right? How do you how do you differentiate, right? How do you keep coming up with new things that make your service um, more relevant to your customers? How do you maintain your pricing when you've got other competitors also, you know, delivering good services, right? So how do you stay differentiated? How do you keep iterating and improving what you're delivering to customers so your customers stay with you and aren't interested in going somewhere else and you know how do you grow i mean like that growth i mean really what these companies are i mean, I mean probably particularly agen is they're not growing as fast as people wanted them to but so it's a tough environment to just keep growing right there's always a limit to growth at some point um, but i think the biggest challenge is, is competition of competitors coming in and winning customers faster than you can absolutely um and i guess yeah martin would love to get your take obviously you know you're you're running a business yourself um you, know, you guys have done funding raises in the past like how much does this environment shape i suppose both the the day-to-day running of the business but also kind of i suppose the bigger strategic decisions that you're having to make i think it shapes kind of everything i think this is the time when you can see which companies are surviving and which are not so if you like it comes down to the like the product you're building and the way you're hiring and who you're hiring and how you're effectively kind of building out the revenue streams and we can see that the people and companies who haven't figured that out coming into this and are not able to make hard choices at the moment and they will have a really difficult time. It's easy to get like hire a lot of people and have a lots of overhead there. So in that sense, like the best companies usually are shaped during these kind of times because you will get into this kind of real customer values. Um, like one of my friends effectively says that you build the most of your product in the last 20% of your uh, runway because this is a time you really need to go and understand and you can't make shit up anymore. So this is actually an interesting time. So I would see that again as a positive way uh, that now it's time to actually build the real products what deliver value and these companies will be huge. 
I would add actually an interesting point was uh, you mentioned that like Stripe and all this. I think there is actually one player in the um, in the payments market that everybody underestimates right now. It's Apple, and like this is crazy what these guys are doing. Like they are probably one of the biggest financial networks in the world soon. So I would keep an eye on them. Yeah. Definitely a good watch out. Okay, well, let's see how Adyen and Ramp both both fare over the next few months. But two massive companies having a massive impact on the wider industry. So um, definitely ones to keep an eye on. Okay, our next story comes from fintech finance, and that is Lightyear launches B2B investment accounts targeted at solopreneurs. Investment platform Lightyear has announced the launch of small business investment accounts for freelancers and sole directors in the UK. The new UK business accounts will have access to 3,500 plus international stocks, funds and up to 4.5% interest on uninvested company cash. Lightyear has also partnered with BlackRock to give small businesses access to money market funds or MMFs, an asset type normally reserved for large corporations that can pay 1 million plus minimum investments. With these accounts, Lightyear is looking to the woefully underserved freelancer market in the UK. Founded in 2020, the company has previously been focused on the retail investor market and has raised $35 million to date from investors, including Lightspeed Ventures and Ireland Burbridge. Martin, obviously great to have you here today to kind of dig into this a bit more detail. Thanks for joining us. Um, Solopreneurs is a really interesting place to, to focus. Why, why have you guys gone for that? Um, we asked our customers what they want and they came back to, and said that businesses are also people. Um, and then we started looking into the market that we saw that a lot of so-called one-person businesses where people do freelance, all entrepreneurs and all that, like more than 4 million people in the UK or 4 million businesses in the UK. And we didn't kind of make up that need because we launched this business six months ago, actually, in a different market. And it went on significantly. And like what happened was effectively like, First thing before like a business is we launched multi-currency account and multi-currency account we attached interest and we built this really simple interest product that you put money in there, whatever you're not investing will pay you um, central bank interest and take uh, 0.75 fee. And if interest go up, you will get more. If the interest goes down, you get less. And like this was like amazing product for retail people. And then more and more businesses start to come in and say like, what about me? I'm not getting interest anywhere. And we opened up like for single person businesses in a different market and these people start enjoying that. And the moment we got into the position where like bigger businesses started to trade, like we need that as well. Uh, because like, let me remind you what, uh, what we discussed before that markets have changed, the interest in the environment has changed. It's a difficult situation. But in the same time, uh, cash is a new asset class. You're making risk-free interest on, on cash. And this is extremely interesting, especially for your startups or, or any, any bigger business. If you have like, even like thousands or even hundreds of millions um, cash lying somewhere, like this is a big step. So we can we have like going gradually one by one and taking a market segment and effectively letting our customers to drive us. Yeah, no, I think that's fascinating. And I suppose, you know, who is like the ideal customer for this product like who are you most excited to try and reach so today there's a lot of people who just like have a side gig uh they'll do a freelance job somewhere and they have cash lying around on, uh, on their accounts so getting that cash into getting an interest getting the cash on uh on um, you know, investing in the stock markets uh, because again like markets are actually interesting like they're sometimes go down but also i think 
people often like to invest when the blood is on the market. So you have this extra cash. And like for us, in many ways, this is a good first step because we like to build like a first simple products first, uh, like onboarding, um, like Tesco is significantly different than onboarding a one person company it means that we can start going with that. And then we open up for the, uh, bigger businesses. So we start with like effectively freelance solo entrepreneurs, and then we're going to go and open it up for everybody. Again, another step, what we did a couple of months ago in a different market. So we can go market per market and learn and apply these learnings from here as well. Yeah, and no, I think it's it sounds like a really sensible way to approach it. Um, and obviously, I suppose a key a key part of this new offering seems to anchor around these these money market funds. Um, you know, we have a real wide variety of listeners to this show, so I suppose could you explain a bit more about you know, why it is that you see that as so important and what what is their significance? So money market funds are effectively really simple instrument that invests into ultra short term um, kind of obligations means that they are tracking effectively the central bank market interest or like are close to that. So it's like one of the highest interest is what you're able to get, which is like really risk free. But in the same time, uh, they're really liquid means that you can buy today and sell it tomorrow and you don't have any obligations to keep your money in there for like three months or 12 months or like what's the trad- traditional like, term products. So in a way, it's like banks and like bigger organizations often use them to kind of make more interest out of their cash. And like today, as interest environment went from negative to extremely positive, this actually like people are discovering it again. But again, it's weird that like Europe and UK and like we are 20 years behind US. In the US, if you go and talk to people, then it seems that everybody, everybody's cash is money market funds. And they have like this extremely interesting products that are like automatically kind of balancing everything. But if you come to the Europe, people haven't even heard of it. Uh, so it's more about like bigger organizations, banks, whatnot, who are using this kind of instrument. So again, coming back to the kind of our first ethos when we started like there is that if you have lots of money and you're connected, then you get the good terms and prices and everything. If you're a small person, Nobody cares about it. So, but like the instruments are the same. So let's make sure that we take these wholesale instruments and give them to the, everybody's hand. And now we're able to actually create some better investment solutions there. Cool. Um, Kate, what, what are your thoughts on this? What are you seeing in the work that you do globally in terms of support for freelancers? How does this compare? Uh, well, I, I mean, I've seen quite a lot of activity in this space, um, especially around payroll, instant payouts or earned wage access, um, accounting, tax help. We actually just saw Collective raise last month, um, which is in this space, they raised $50 million in the US. So there's quite a lot of activity happening here, too. There are a lot of people trying to solve for it. Um, but I think there, there hasn't been that much activity around investments or saving for retirement or like a lot of focus on this market outside of those initial use cases. So that's pretty exciting to see. I read recently that something like 70% of self-employed people are not saving into a pension, which feels a bit wild to me. Um, so it's nice to see like the activity around this sort of expanding beyond initial use cases and starting to tackle some of the deeper and, and more long-term challenges. Can I give you a number here? Uh, not even related to the uh, kind of solo entrepreneurs or freelancers. 85% of Europeans are not investing in their future. The 85% of people don't really have a really good offer uh, to spend in their rent- retirement. So they're hoping that the governments will help them. And now if you are 
um, entrepreneur or freelancer, then this doesn't often apply you so well as other people. So it's really drastic place to be. So in my opinion, like you need to take care of yourself. Like you, you need to make sure that you have a good living in a later stages of life as well. So in that sense, I think it's extremely interesting that you are able to build your investment portfolio and savings portfolio and so on. Benjamin, how, how far do you think these types of offerings will go to plug the gap that Martin's talking about? Um, that's a tricky question. Not far enough, not because there's anything wrong with the product, because of the sheer difficulty of getting through to people and communicating to people, right? To, you know, to that point Martin just made about 85% of people not investing in their future. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. I mean, you know, we're kind of we're broadening the conversation a lot here beyond entrepreneurs. Um, there's inertia, there's lack of education, there's frankly lack of money, you know, the cost of living, you know, challenges that, you know, people just, so many people just struggling to get by. So there's so many reasons. So, um, Kate, of course it won't go far enough because, you know, how, how on earth do you solve some of these problems? And that, to some extent, I think, Martin, is why people do just kind of hope that the state will look after them because it's too big, it's too complicated for, for many people to get their heads around. And even if they do understand it, actually taking action and managing to set money aside is really tough for, for many people. It is. And, but if you compare to the US, then half of the US people put the money aside, like significantly. So, like, and we can see, like, we can argue, uh, is it education or lack of the products or Europeans are different? I don't think Europeans are different. They're humans all alike. Uh, I think it's, we have extremely complicated products and we have no education. Like I went through the school and like nobody told me, told me anything about investing. Like you need to go seek, make an effort in this complicated field. So I do think that you need to fix education and products to make sure that it's simple and people are convinced that they need to do it on their own. So it's a lot of things to fix. One thing that I would just add about the U.S. specifically is that we have very different safety nets and we think about safety nets very differently. Do you in have terms safety of... nets? <laughs> <laughs> I'm being diplomatic. <laughs> but um, we, we think about that very differently. So we're taught from a, a very young age that if you don't save for retirement, you will have nothing really. So um, it's instilled in us very, very early. And, you know, thinking about saving for later in life is is not something that is is not on your radar at all. There may be people that are struggling to do it, um, but it's definitely top of mind for, for anyone in the workforce here. Yeah, I thought one um, one element of the, the platform, Martin, that I think is super interesting, right, is that you do have this split between, I suppose, the, the invested part of the, the account and then the, the, sort of the non-invested where you're still paying that interest. So what impact are you seeing paying the interest on the uninvested funds having on your customers behavior and kind of are you trying to are you trying to guide that or to influence that because i assume as you're talking about needing to invest in the future but by offering interest on uninvested you're kind of also encouraging people to play it safe so how do you strike that balance investing doesn't mean that you need to take a lot of risk and i think it's actually opposite in a way like i can see from data that the more active you are the more risk you take the more likely you are you're going to lose so i would say that uh, the, the best investor uh, takes this rather conservative approach where they'll put money aside every month, uh, whatever is the amount, uh, 
do dollar cost averaging in that sense. You put the money into rather low risk instruments like white distributed ETFs and whatnot. Uh, or today, cash is an instrument. Again, as it like pays you 5% interest, this is extremely interesting uh, way to grow your portfolio because if the markets are on shaky and you don't want to be there, there is always possibility that your cash is making money. Is it on the interest side or is it on the market side? It's always, always there. So I would say that uh, today, um, like what I see, customers are more and more interested of making sure that they're able to make this safe situation because not only investors are, uh, or like big investors are emotional creatures. Everybody is an emotional creature and nobody wants to take unnecessary risk. So I think it's actually like good like way today to put your money aside. Don't really bother with that and go grow your portfolio. The main thing is like, are you able to, do you understand that they need to do that? If you understand that, then this is 70% of the way. Uh, but like getting people to do that is the hardest part. So that's what I'm calling like building a soft product. You need to be helping people to understand what are the reasonable actions and you need to guide them in the right way. So again, I would be careful if you, people go to a random investment platform and they say like, you need to trade a lot to make lots of money. It mostly the platform makes a lot of money if you're trading a lot. So it's kind of opposite in that sense. No, that makes that makes a ton of sense. Well, we wish you all the best with the launch. It sounds again like a, a really exciting new offering. So so all the best of it and we'll look forward to seeing how, how it goes. Awesome. We're just gonna take a very quick pause here. We'll be back shortly. FinTech Insider Community, we need your help. The 11FS Awards returns on Wednesday, 15th of November, and we will be celebrating the people and businesses from across the globe who are helping to move the industry forward. This is where you come in. Do not miss your chance to influence who takes home an 11FS Awards trophy, whether they're trying to make the world a better place for their customers, changing the game for businesses, or utilizing AI to improve their customer experience. We want you to tell us who is building the best stuff. Submit your nominations right now at 11fsawards.com. That's 11fsawards.com. Welcome back. Before we get into the second half of the news and note, go check our most recent episode of our FinTech Insider Insights show. In our latest episode, we're asking how our financial services players are using the blockchain. David Breer is joined by a panel of experts from Fireblocks, DigitalX and Moneyflow to look at how financial services are actually using blockchain technology and how they choose an option that works for them. Go check out the podcast in our podcast feed. It's the episode below this one. Let's get back into the news. Okay, this story is taken from The Times and it is Goldman Sachs plans sale to concentrate on the ultra wealthy. Goldman Sachs is considering selling its wealth management business in the United States as the Wall Street Investment Bank shifts its focus away from the mass market and back to serving only the wealthiest individuals. Goldman said it was evaluating alternatives for its personal financial management business, a financial advisory service that it bought four years ago and that manages around $29 billion. The move comes amid a broader retreat from consumer operations at Goldman, which has lost $3 billion in the past three years. And as it pushes ahead with a sale of GreenSky, an online consumer lender, that means that two deals made under David Solomon, its chief executive, could be unwound. We asked you, our listeners, on the Atlanta Fest LinkedIn page, should Goldman go back to doing what it does best? 68% said yes, stick to what you know. 17% said no, they should branch out. And 16% said they were unsure. 
Um, Kate, what, what do you think of this? It's um, it's just always interesting to watch Goldman, right? But lots of back and forths. Yeah, I would say a lot of us are really disappointed because when Goldman first made known its intentions to tackle the mass market, a lot of us were really excited. We were especially excited about Marcus and everything that it stood for. And what we're seeing now is like a complete unraveling of that strategy. So it is not just the sale or Green Sky or Marcus. It is the strategy overall that seems to have been a real problem. And I think that's probably for a couple of reasons. I think the, the company definitely saw some shifts in management and the drivers of, of that business um, who were leading those efforts. And obviously, you know, the macroeconomic environment has shifted, but also... And I think this is a really big one. They lack the expertise. Um, you know, you could just take the losses that Goldman took on lending through Marcus. That alone demonstrated a real lack of understanding and underwriting consumer credit. So I think that, you know, this shift back towards what they're really good at is probably a good one. It's disappointing. Um, but there is something to be said for doubling down on where your expertise is. Benjamin, what, what was your take when you saw this latest latest news drop for Goldman? Similar to Kate's, I you know, share the disappointment because, yeah, it was very exciting seeing sort of Goldman Sachs coming into the market with all that capital and so on. And you know, there are a lot of very bright people. At, at, you know, Goldman Sachs, if you pay a lot of money, you can attract whoever you want, right? Um, but, yeah, Kate's, Kate's spot on. They they. They tripped up. They didn't make the most of it. The losses, you know, some of the credit losses were really surprising. And I suppose, the, you know, the root of it is, you know, retail banking's not that profitable, right? Trying to make lots of money out of, you know, ordinary people who don't have very much money is quite hard. You know, they're not rich people, you know, norm, you know normal people. <laughs> um, and you compare that with Goldman Sachs's phenomenal ability to make, you know, enormous amounts of money in the capital markets. And you can see that the kind of return on capital that they're going to get from retail banking and so on is just not the same. And then you get Goldman's sort of share price sort of going along ho-hum um, and investors saying this isn't great. And I think you get a lot of pressure to pull back from the strategy. I think the strategy made sense in terms of diversifying away from capital markets. Um, but if the shareholders want higher returns, yeah, you know, don't invest in retail banking if you want to make a fortune because you're not going to. I guess from like a direct, you know, from a personal perspective, like I remember when you know, the Marcus account dropped in the UK and it grabbed all these headlines because of the rate and it, you, know, you opened it up and it was a super smooth experience to like move your money in and, you know, it just made sense. But I was just sat there like waiting for like the next thing. Like you kind of, you're waiting for like, well, where does this go next? Like, okay, like you've built something good. Like it, it works, it's smooth. It's doing what it needs to do for this thing. It's promised me it's going to do, but what next? And it just felt like, yeah, maybe there was a key moment when you certainly in the UK, obviously they've taken a slightly different or had a slightly different roadmap in the US where they've gone down this lending approach as well. But it just felt like, yeah, they, they choked almost in the UK. Like, oh, I don't know what was meant to come next, but it, it felt like that there was just this big void where where nothing landed. But you know, that was just my personal perspective, just sat there with my my market savings account, which I'm now looking at thinking like, oh God, like, should I go close it? Like, I mean, if they're, if they're pulling the plug on market, should I be putting my money elsewhere? But anyway, that's my personal drama aside. Martin, what, what do you reckon about this? You should definitely put money in the light here. I think that's a nice sensible option. <laughs> <laughs> um, it kind of feels that people start to realize that... Um, 
if you're building in the retail market and you have a lot of customers and a lot of customers are quite often quite different from each other it means that they have different needs uh they don't bring you a lot of money so it's always easier not easier but like a different business model when you acquire one big customer and they pay you millions but you can acquire a million customers and can pay you one so this is i think something where actually not many companies have managed to do and like banks even less so uh, I worked in TransferWise or Wise uh, back in then and Revolut. There's some other some companies who understand that oh, there's these markets, these countries, these people, and they have all the different needs and risks and fears and whatnot. In a way, the way they, the way they use the product means that you need to be rather global, local to have like a massive understanding of this market. And there's like only only some companies are successful. That mostly banks are even like really localized in one market and understand this one segment in that one particular market so it's uh i really liked what the goldman did uh because again coming into the market and making it better for everybody i think everybody would benefit from that but um we, we see every once in a while that all the big ones are just too slow to react to the change and understanding that people are different yeah kate where do you think this leaves david solomon personally Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think this is not just a, a David Solomon story, though. I think this is really about Goldman's sort of wider strategy and, and how they executed, um, you know, on entering the mass market or, or serving the, the broader consumer base. Um, so I, I can't make a call on exactly where that leaves him personally. Um, but I will say that I don't think that this is a Solomon story, or at least not just uh, a Solomon story. And obviously, we all know that if it does go tits up, he's got his DJing to fall back on. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lose too much, too much sleep thinking over, thinking over it. Um, Benjamin, obviously, we've seen Chase be pretty successful uh, in the in the recent past. Do you think the success of Chase kind of will make it harder for you? Know, Goldman to fend off this criticism, as you say, maybe from their investors or from members of their board. Are you talking about Chase in the UK? Are you talking about Chase in the States? Well, I guess it's a combination of the two, right? Like we've seen JP Morgan Chase profits jump. You know, Chase in the UK has been very successful in its own right. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, inevitably, particularly listed firms, you know, get compared compared with their competitors all the time. Um, if we bring it back to David Solomon, and I, I, I take your point, Kate, it's a, it's a wider thing than just just one man. You know, Jamie Dimon has probably got more decisions right than David Solomon. Uh, Jamie Dimon's decisions and the decisions of his team have probably played out better. And so, yeah, that's going to put more pressure on the executives at Goldman Sachs. Um, they get paid an awful lot of money to get those decisions right. So, you know, yeah, um, when your competitors are getting more decisions right that puts piles more pressure on you as a senior executive but you know you did want to be there in the first place yeah i don't think this is going to turn into a david solomon sub story like i think <laughs> i think we can uh, we can all put the tissues away i think it's i think it's okay but um obviously the the other big thing that we're keeping an eye on right kate is this this deal of apple like is that is it gonna go is it gonna stay have you heard any more sort of like up-to-date rumors or I don't know. I mean, honestly, like what I have heard is, is a lot of rumors and the rumors kind of go back and forth. I will say this. Um, Apple has a lot of stipulations that make it hard for Goldman to make money, right? They can't charge fees and, and things like that. 
Um, and also demographically, Apple is looking to cater to its users. So that means it's looking to go broad. There's over a hundred million iPhone users in the United States. Um, and that runs contrary to what we were just talking about around Goldman's expertise and its desire to focus on its roots. So I think even though Apple is a high-end brand in this context, high-end and luxury are, are not the same thing. And I don't know where that leaves that relationship. I think that there's a lot of tension there around that. And I think there's also obviously a lot behind the scenes that we don't know. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Always, always is. Okay, well, we'll have to move on to our, our next story, but yeah, always going to keep it on Marcus. Our next story comes from AltFi, and that is Monzo tops CMA's list of best banks. Monzo has once again topped the list of the best banks in the UK. The digital bank came out top across almost all rankings in the Competition Market Authority, or CMA, latest satisfaction survey, topping the list for both personal and business current account providers in Great Britain. Meanwhile, TSB, Virgin Money and Royal Bank of Scotland sat at the bottom of the list. Monzo, Starling and First Direct took the top three spots across three out of four categories, overall service, online and mobile services and overdraft service. Monzo stepped aside from Metro Bank when it came to branch services due to their lack of branches. So I suppose you can't you can't hold that against them too much. Um, Benjamin, I suppose it, it quite often becomes easy to take what Monzo does for granted. Is there are there things that people miss behind these figures? Are they doing more than people realise to drive this clear popularity of customers? I think when you look at excellence in in banking or indeed any industry. It's about getting hundreds of things right, right? It's about having a whole load of great people, great processes, and consistently delivering on your promises to your customers. Um, Some of the older banks with more legacy processes, you know, where they've piled systems on systems and so on, they've got paper processes and so on, things break, things go wrong, etc., Honestly, they've got you know more people, so that actually creates more opportunities for manual errors and so on. Um, so the the digital banks like Monzo, like Revolut, like Starling, etc., in the UK, and you know their, their comparisons in every other market in the world, because they've got newer platforms, generally are going to have fewer errors taking part. Now, if you then combine that with a culture that's very customer centric, you're in a good place to get a lot of stuff right. So yeah, I think people do take. Monzo and Starling and Revolut in the UK a little bit for granted. They've totally raised the bar on customers' expectations of what good looks like. And it's really interesting when you look at younger consumers, um, because they just assume that that's just the banking just is that good. Um, so yeah, I think people do take it for granted a bit, you know, so well done to the team at Monzo. You know, I think they're doing fantastic work. Um, as as indeed is the team at Starling. And indeed, you know, um, many of the employees at First Direct, which also does great work for its customers. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, right? Like, I think the thing, you know, we speak to lots of people in fintechs and we speak to a lot of people who work in big banks. And I suppose the thing that comes up time and time again when you're talking about Monzo, it seems you know, from your from your perspective, Benjamin, about like where they're technically superior or kind of where their products are configured in a better way, it seems to come back time and time again to this pots capability right like monzo has the ability to allow you to split your your current account balance out into different spaces um in a way that just seems to completely mystify lots of people working within big banks who are just like well i've got a current account i've got a savings account what is this pot like what is it It, you know i I don't know how to classify it where does it sit in the stack who owns it Uh, and it, it just feels like that 
that single thing seems to be a massive, a massive divider. But um, yeah, that's just my experience. Martin, obviously, you know, you were previously part of the team at Wise. Um, what's what's your take on on Monzo's success? Is it still shaping kind of what we're seeing happen in the market today? Like I, I like Monza. I think like this, I agree with the result. They're like one of the best on the market. But I have to say also like they're not really surprising anymore. So like the next step hasn't been happening. So I would encourage everybody kind of step up and figure out like how do you kind of bring it to the to the level what like everybody expects in the general software world. Um, I think that's the kind of the main difference is if you're thinking about like all these kind of neo banks and whatever you kind of call them, they are running on top of actual big banks. And what banks can do is that they can move large amounts of money and really efficient manners and their systems are built on that. But them coming into the retail market is rather difficult. And like one of the elements, what you mentioned is the user experience is that like the technology evolves so fast and we're building apps every single month and like it kind of steps up constantly. But if a bank has a, uh, release cycle and once in a year then like it's even it's impossible that you're able to build a good user, ex- user experience and like the sexy user experience and so on so i think it's uh, like a combination of making sure that you have like the most modern interface uh but also you, what you have need to have is that you need to have a value proposition as well and usually what this like once what once i done they have done one thing really exceptionally well and like effectively disregard the whole large set of the banking the wise did the same thing like they do one thing which is really good and then maybe plug in a couple of other things and revolut tries to do something a little bit more scale on that but like this is something what you can see that if you take one iterate really quickly be really modern and like challenge um the kind of the process as well then you're able to drive the price and everything down as well so it's a combination of user experience but also value how do you automate and how do you build the software yeah no for sure Kate, obviously we get quite caught up in Monzo in the UK, right? How, how does it, stepping outside of the UK, like how does it benchmark globally? What's what's your sort of probably slightly more impartial perspective on on it? Yeah, I mean, my perspective is also quite positive. Um, I think Monzo is a leader and, and sets a really good example for challenger banks or, or neo banks elsewhere in the world, in, including in the US. Um, you know, some of our homegrown banks have kind of built their propositions to be modeled off of the challenger model in the UK. So not just Monzo, but, um, you know, kind of that, that challenger bank wave that you drove a, a few years ago, I think has, has served as a real model for, for elsewhere in the world. I think in the US, most people would compare it to Chime, but that's a tough comparison because that's not, not a, a bank. It's, it's a financial services brand. I would say Another example of this kind of success is is Nubank, which is just a complete powerhouse out of Brazil. And one thing that I think, you know, a, a company like Nubank and Monzo have in common is the the strength in their in their brand, right? So they've developed these like incredible propositions and and they've, you know, drawn in lots of customers, but they also have a real strength in their in their brand, which is very impressive and I think there are very few examples of that globally that's been done that well. Um, so yeah, well done. Benjamin, I suppose if we chuck our positive hats off, what are the lessons for those at the bottom of this ranking? Well, I'm tempted to build on on Kate's point about brand because, you know, your brand really these days reflects your customer experience, right? Brands used to be the things you promised in your advertising, but now your brand is actually the experience your other customers have and share with each other. Um, and that 
customer experience ultimately hinges on your culture as an organization, right? To what extent do you as an organization focus on what your customers' needs are and how you can serve those customers' needs better? I think some of the organizations towards the bottom of the ranking have not so much lost sight of their customers, but they've got stuck because they've got a lot of legacy systems and they've got a lot of legacy thinking and legacy processes that make it difficult for the well-intentioned and hard-working staff in some of those organizations to deliver better experiences to customers because there's too much process in the way. They're not well-structured. And so you've got good people who are unable to fix and improve the experiences because they're stuck with legacy thinking, legacy processes, legacy technology, and they're simply not set up right or culturally as organizations to do that. And they're focused on the wrong goals as organizations and they're not really they're not some of some of them are trying to fix it and some of them are maybe not trying to fix it hard enough and you can also have sometimes you have a chief executive who comes into you know some of those organizations with the wrong priorities you know chief executive is very focused on how do i get the share price up in the next year or the next two years and that tends to be detrimental to a culture of delivering better experiences to your customers I can give you an interesting example here. Um, Wise have had this internal battle, I think, for forever, effectively. You, like, in one hand, you want to build a product which is as low cost as possible. Uh, if, like, uh, the mission was uh, literally eventually free. But at the same time, you're now a public company. Now you need to deliver revenues, higher revenues. It's like easy way to deliver revenues to raise the prices. So, like, how do you convince internally that if you're having a lower price, then nobody can beat you on the market and you grow bigger and you make more money while taking a smaller chunk? This is like such a long way to think of instead of getting money into the bank right now and having a higher share price. So I think this is actually one of the elements what startups or smaller challenger neobanks are doing pretty well. They're focusing on like driving the costs down and they have built on top of that ethos from the get-go. Yeah, I think that's um, a really fair observation. I suppose the thing that I find especially interesting about these like survey results, and I think even as someone who loves a survey, I love a survey. But even as someone who loves a survey, I could admit that lots of people just think like, oh, survey, like what does it matter? Actually, like these these results have you know, are published at the bottom of all of these you know, banks' websites. You know, when you go to the homepage, and they're not hidden away on some like you know page right at the bottom like they're on the on the homepage, sort of stipulated by the regulator to be right there so um yeah I, i'm not i don't actually know how long that's been the case for but it's really interesting right you go onto all of these major bank websites and right at the bottom is a stat that fundamentally says this isn't a very good place for you to have your money um so i do think it's really interesting to to watch and see kind of how that contributes to the the system in the uk it's four or five years now, Kate. It's, yeah. um, it's, a, it's a regulatory mandate. They have to publish it. Um, it's great for customers. Yeah. Um, long live surveys. Well, <laughs> on that research nerd out, um, we'll move on to the next section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quick file roundup of some more click-worthy news this week. Benjamin, what have you got for us this week? This comes from Business Day Nigeria, and it is that Nala enters Nigeria to drive cross-border payments. Nala Money, which is an African payments company and money transfer app licensed in the UK and United States, has officially launched payments to Nigeria to drive cross-border payments. The announcement indicates the company's push to deepen local partnerships and acquire licenses across the continent. Earlier this year, Nala announced it had expanded its services into the European market. 
Benjamin, great name, Fernandez, Nala's CEO, said, As we take our first strides into West Africa, Nigeria is a clear opportunity space for Nala. He added, As a company, we are committed to advancing payment solutions for Africans worldwide. Fantastic story. Nala money originated in sort of East Africa, so it's strong in countries like Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya. Um, it's also um, got a growing business in some of the sort of francophone, French-speaking um, African countries. But Nigeria is the biggest, uh, biggest market. It's the most populous country uh, in Africa. So it's a huge part of it. I think the other thing is... Um, it's often tempting to sort of think of Africa in terms of payment flows from African countries to other countries, to the EU, to the United States, and so on. But there's also huge payment flows between African countries, as Africans increasingly, you know, obviously trade, you know, goods and services with each other. So, being in Nigeria, huge uh, opportunity. If you want to build a pan-African business, you've got to be in Nigeria. For sure. Um, our next story, uh, also kind of linked to the African continent. This one comes from Bloomberg. Africa's $3 billion payment startup Flutterwave presses ahead with IPO plans. Flutterwave, Africa's largest startup, is pressing ahead with plans for an initial public offering or IPO. This comes after the company made headway in resolving allegations of financial impropriety in Kenya so that it can access more and bigger international partners, its CEO has said. Oleg Benga Agbula, CEO and co-founder, said that accusations that it had refused to honour former employees' stock rights and that staff were harassed and bullied were very, very isolated cases and they wouldn't affect the planned share sale. The company has won approval for the first step in securing the right to operate in Kenya, as Benjamin said, a key African market. Well, I think, yeah, when it when it comes to Flutterwave, it's only like life never seems to be dull, right? So, um, you know, we were talking about Adyen at the at the top of the show, but Flutterwave is also a massive company to be watching out for in the payment space. You know, they operate in more than 30 countries. Um, they've raised over, I think, $500 million in funding over 12 rounds. I think their last round in 2022 was, I think, valuing them at over $3 billion, you know, sort of a massive increase over their last round just 12 months before. So a massive company, massive potential, obviously have had some some growing pains, which they're working through. Um, but I think, yeah, very interesting to kind of see the narrative that the, the CEO is taking in terms of the benefits of this IPO, kind of talking about how, you know, in order for them to attract, I think he talks about sort of large global clients, you know, that maybe that IPO is going to be really important, that kind of showing that they can go public and be held to the same standards. Um, will kind of give those types of clients that they want to attract kind of confidence in the kind of the compliance levels and the kind of global capabilities of Flutterwave rather than just sort of seeing them as a as an African specialist. So um yeah, sort of interesting to see you know, where they where they choose to IPO and kind of what that valuation is when they do, given all of the the wider economic um circumstances, but um would love to see them be successful. So fingers crossed. Okay, now it's time for the and finally section of the show, a look at something a bit more offbeat from the news this week. Um, we've taken the story this week from BBC, and that is banking jokes make it on the list of the best from the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. The Edinburgh Fringe is the world's biggest performance art festival taking place over three weeks every year in August. The Joke of the Fringe Award is now in its 14th year, which looks to determine the best joke of the festival selected by comedy critics and voted on by members of the general public. Two of this year's top jokes had a distinctive banking or financial services theme. The first was from Amos Gill, whose joke was, Last year I had a great joke about inflation, but it's hardly worth it now. The second is by comedian William Stone with the joke, Nationwide must have looked pretty silly when they opened their first branch. 
that's really just showing how definitely I'm not meant to be a comedian. The Guardian's own list also featured the following joke from Quan Wenhuang. My relationship with my mum is like the evolution of payment technology. We went from physical contact to electronic only, then it was contactless. Benjamin, you're not falling over laughing, which I'm sure is probably more a reflection on my very poor delivery than the jokes themselves, but which 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 was your favourite? It was actually because I'd seen them seen them in the news before. Um, I did like the one about uh, inflation. I thought that was particularly good. Um, the pedant in me can't find the nationwide joke funny because I remember the nationwide wasn't founded as the nationwide building society at all. And I'm actually old enough to have had an account of the Anglian Building Society, which was one of the precursor organisations. But anyway, but enough, really, enough, enough pedantry. I really wish you'd been in the audience. Like for that show, I feel like I can just picture you like physically struggling not to put your hand up and just That would have interrupt. made me really popular, wouldn't it? That heckle. Yeah. <laughs> Martin, are you going to store any of these for team events, family parties? No, I'm trying to figure out, can I use the inflation one for my money market fund product <laughs> page, maybe? Yeah. Because. Um, Kate, you don't, you don't look like you've, you've fallen over laughing either. I mean, which, which was your favourite? I think the inflation one's my favorite because it's so timely. Maybe I can incorporate it in some some of my writing as a quote at some point. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, we're all getting very excited just because people are finding financial services vaguely funny, which doesn't which doesn't happen all that often, right? But um, I think the winning joke was I started dating a zookeeper, but it turned out he was a cheater, which I feel is just a better quality joke generally so you know maybe we shouldn't be getting so excited about the financial services ones i mean benjamin do you have a financial services joke that you can you can add to our list i've been waiting for this all day i really hope you do if if you have no interest in banking you are not alone uh, oh, um, i've got a, I got a okay. slightly better one um, <laughs> why are irish bankers Ooh. so successful uh-oh, this could go very badly wrong. <laughs> Why? Because, because their capital is always Dublin. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Martin, any any jokes to throw into the mix? Oh, no, I'm going to fall flat here. <laughs> um, Kate, any particular like, American versions, American humour lenses to throw into this? I, I hate to disappoint you, but I don't have one either. I do. I'm very curious, though, as to whether or not uh, Benjamin is is the penned author of the Irish of the Irish joke. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't make that up. I, <laughs> <laughs> what what did you Google? What did you Google to find these jokes? Well, I Google banking jokes, which produce very few results. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm not surprised. I don't think I know any banking jokes. It's just like banking. I don't tell, I don't really tell jokes generally. I just tell anecdotes. And I feel like most anecdotes that I now have about banking are not funny. They're just quite sad. I know one about accountants. Okay. How do you spot the extrovert in a group of accountants? He's the one looking at someone else's shoes. Oh. <laughs> you know, I think it's probably enough of the joke section of Fintech Insider. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that wraps up this week's uh, Fintech Insider. Thank you so much to today's guest. Where can people find out a bit more about you, Benjamin? Uh, you can, well, in, in, in the unlikely event you're interested in, in me, you can find me on uh, Benjamin Ensor on LinkedIn, or you can find out more about the work the team is doing on 11fs.com. Plus links to your, your upcoming comedy roadshow, absolutely. Um, Kate, what about you? You can find me on LinkedIn as well. And you can find all of our research and content at ccginsights.com. 
uh, and Martin. You can find us at our new domain, lightyear.com, uh, what we just acquired, and uh, also from the linkedin.com. Awesome. Uh, and as for me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Kate Moody, or you can drop me an email, kate at learnfest.com. Thank you so much for listening. Join the conversation on social media or email podcast at alonefirst.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye.